Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 5th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial was written by David Atkins of Sioux City, and David writes, Snow, a dirty four-letter word. Again, this was written by David Atkins of Sioux City. And the five-day forecast uh, for the Siouxland area is today is going to be sunny with a high of 36 and a low of 25. Monday will be mostly cloudy with a stray shower or two with a high of 39 and a low of 27. Tuesday will be sunny with a high of 43 and a low of 23. Wednesday will uh, be partial sunshine with a high of 44 and a low of 27. And Thursday will be cloudy, breezy, and a little bit colder with a high of 34 and a low of 19. Our uh, top story today is, on the front page is Sioux City Council mulls adding four more police officers. The Sioux City Council, during an operating budget session Saturday, discussed the possibility of adding four additional full-time police officer positions in fiscal year 24. The Sioux City Police Department, which has allocated 127 full-time officers, is currently experiencing burnouts really heavy, according to Police Chief Rex Muller. He said the department is dealing with a half a dozen injuries as well as three retirements next week. We have people that are considering leaving the department just because of the workload that we place on them. They increased expectations, Muller said. The City Council began its review of the proposed $193.5 million fiscal year 24 operating budget at the special meeting in the Council Chambers. The operating budget is used to fund a wide variety of services public safety, which includes the police and fire departments, accounts for the bulk of the operating expenditures are 31%. The next largest segments are 18% for utilities and 16% for public works. City Finance Director Teresa Fitch told the council that four additional police officers would cost homeowners $5.85 per $100,000 of value. Muller said the staffing changes the department is dealing with are due to both expected and unexpected losses as well as a difficult recruiting climate. When things like Memphis are happening, that really makes people question coming into this profession. So we need to be very aggressive at bringing the best people to come here and work in Sioux City, Muller said, referencing the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. Five Memphis Police, Tennessee police officers have been charged with second-degree murder in the death of Nichols, a 29-year-old black man. Muller said the department will lose a quarter to a third of its staff in the next several years. He said those who came on during a huge hiring blitz in the early 90s have been working for 26 to 29 years and are looking to get out of the profession. Muller noted that there's a delay in hiring due to pre-academy, academy, and field training. He said new officers cannot function solo for nearly a year. We need to replace those people and we want to have a workforce ready to go so that our citizens don't feel that transition, that the services are maintained. But we understand the need to be fiscally responsible, he said. Councilman Matthew O'Kane acknowledged that the department is bare bones right now and he said he has heard members of the public say the city needs more officers on the streets. If somebody calls and says, you know, I had this stolen and it doesn't add up to that $1,000 or whatever that limit it, 
they still deserve the right to meet with a police officer. There still needs to be an investigation, in my opinion, O'Kane said. I don't think that there's any small call in our community. I think we need to make sure that people feel safe. The council is expected to further discuss the matter at a budget wrap-up session slated for February 15th. The city's total proposed budget for a fiscal year 24 is $303.8 million. The operating budget comprises $193.5 million. The first year of the Capital Improvement Program, CIP, $66.1 million and debt service $44.1 million of the total proposed budget. This year, the budget did decrease in totality by $22 million. A majority of that is the CIP budget. Again, we talked about that being funded by the ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act, Fitch told the council. And the debt service has reduced significantly, as has the operating budget. The city of Sioux City's budgeting process is being impacted by a state error that created a shortfall in expected revenue for Iowa cities, counties, school districts, and community colleges. If the Iowa legislature passes a bill to correct the error, the city of Sioux City will see its tax levy increase from $15.41 to $15.76, which is about $655,000, according to Fitch. If we kept it a flat levy based on the rollback amount, we actually would see a larger impact on our residents and less of an impact on our business owners, Fitch said. You can see that there will be a $36 per $100,000 evaluation for homeowners and $88 for commercial owners. Now, with the levy changes and the rollback difference, we actually see a reduction in the levy impact or the impact on residential to $24 and an increase on commercial of $119 per $100,000 valuation. Fridays are for 5th graders at Sioux City's Career Academy. Fridays are for 5th graders at Sioux City's Career Academy. This Friday, Riverside Elementary students guided a space probe from Mars to Earth, identified different parts of the brain, built a lunar lander, and more. The event is aimed at giving students hands-on learning in different career fields. Every elementary school in the Sioux City Community School District gets one Friday during the school year to send their fifth grade students to the Career Academy. The goal is to introduce these students to careers they can consider in the future. We just want to make sure they're exposed and have ideas of what interests they have, said Anthony Gall with the Career Academy. Jace Fry and Elijah Bolcher successfully guided their space probe from Mars to Earth through trial and error. The space probe's probe is a remote controlled sphere. Students had to learn how to cold the ship to move forward for a certain amount of time, turn, and more. They were challenged to avoid meteors and planetary hazards all through computer programming. Fry and Boatgar said the program was hard to learn, but the pair were happy when their space probe made it to Earth. When asked if they were interested in engineering, Boatgar gave a resounding no. It's too hard, he said. At a different station, students got to touch a part of a lamb's brain and identify different parts of the brain and functions. The students also learned how fast the brain communicates with the body and how the impulses can be transferred to someone else. One student was hooked up to a simple machine that detects brain signals for movement. Once that is done, another student was also attached to the machine. If the first student clenched their fist, they caused the second person's hand to move as well. 
Students were fascinated by the machine and had different ideas as to how it worked. Each event is unique with different activities and community partners. The hands-on activities are intended to show students things they are good at or enjoy. For example, if the students enjoyed guiding the spaceship, they could look at careers in engineering or computer science. One station on Friday was Meyer Towing, telling students about what they do and what their different equipment does. Gall said in the past they have had semis, snowplows, skid loaders, excavators, and more. He said these community organizations are looking for their future workforce and want to introduce students to these options early. In the past, Gall said students do remember what activities they enjoyed and say, when I get into high school, I want to try this. At the end of the day, the students can share what they learned and what they took away from the day. As they get into middle school, they'll get to explore a little bit more and we'll bring them back in fifth grade so they can have a tour here and find things that interest them, he said. Gall said the Career Academy's goal is for students to have a plan when they graduate, whether it's a four-year school, an apprenticeship, or going directly into the workforce. The Fridays Are for Fifth Graders program has been running for two years. National Dems Strip Iowa of Envied Caucus Perch the National Democratic Party approved changes Saturday to its presidential primary calendar for 2024, knocking the Iowa Party off its envied first-in-the-nation perch as a starting gun for the presidential election. Iowa's caucuses have led the pack in presidential preference contests since 1972, drawing national media attention and millions of dollars in campaigning from presidential hopefuls. Democratic National Committee members meeting in Philadelphia by a voice vote granted waivers to South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia, and Michigan to hold their presidential primaries ahead of the rest of the country, stripping Iowa Democrats of their first-in-the-nation status and moving the contest out of the early window entirely in favor of more diverse battleground states. South Carolina will go first in 2024, holding its primary on February 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada on February 6th, Georgia on February 5th, 13th and Michigan on February 27th. This calendar does what is long overdue. It expands the number of voices in the window and it elevates diverse communities that are at the core of the Democratic Party, said DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, who is from South Carolina. It puts black voters at the front of the process in South Carolina. Harrison, too, said the calendar allows campaigns of all sizes to compete and build more momentum before moving to bigger battleground states and Georgia and Michigan and elevates the backbone of our party and voices of labor and Latino voters. And it adds Michigan, the heartland where unions built the middle class of this nation, Harrison said. This calendar reflects the best of who we are as a nation and sends a powerful message across all the country. Iowa DNC member and former state party chair Scott Brennan of West Des Moines, however, noted New Hampshire and Georgia cannot comply with the condition of the party waiver. I would be remiss if I did not say we were creating a situation of continued uncertainty that will drag on throughout 2023, he said. New Hampshire and Georgia were granted conditional waivers. The National Party's rulemaking arm last month granted both states an extension until June 3rd to implement changes to when and how they hold Democratic presidential primaries. New Hampshire must also expand access to early voting. The additional time, though, is unlikely to sway Republican leaders in those states who remain opposed to the changes. DNC member Joanne Daldo of New Hampshire said the primary calendar puts that state's Democrats in a no-win position. 
George's primary date is set by Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, whose office has said it will neither hold two separate primaries nor hold the primary at a time that would cost one-party delegates or violate the rules of either party. Moving the state's primary to February 13th would run afoul of GOP rules. We can vote on this calendar, but we will leave here with absolutely nothing settled, Brennan said. There is a limited amount of calendar real estate, conflicting state laws and a GOP calendar that no longer be, bears any resemblance to ours. If the past is prologue, states will spend the coming year maneuvering for their preferred position. Republicans already have agreed to keep the early voting order of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada for the 2024 presidential cycle, and several Republicans already have been to Iowa to weigh the possibility of presidential runs. Iowa and New Hampshire have state laws requiring them to hold contests before other states. Party officials in both states have rebuked the decision, saying that they still intend to hold caucuses and primaries as prescribed by state law. If the states opt to hold their nominating contests outside that window without the waiver, they could face repercussions from the National Party, including a prohibition on Democratic presidential candidates campaigning in the state, and the state losing half its delegates at the convention. Iowa does not have the luxury of conducting a state-run primary, nor are Iowa Republicans likely to support legislation that would establish one, newly elected Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said in a statement following the vote. Iowa law requires a state party to hold precinct caucuses before the last Tuesday in February and before any other contest in other states. When we submit our delegate selection plan to the Rules and Bylaws Committee, we will continue to do what is best for Iowa, adhere to any state legal requirements, and utilize the vote-by-mail process outlined in our application for an early state waiver, Hart said. National Democrats soured on Iowa following a chaotic 2020 caucus night for Iowa Democrats when a smartphone app meant to make reporting results easier failed. As a result, the official Democratic caucus results were not reported for several weeks. The debacle compounded existing concerns about Iowa's lack of racial diversity and barriers to participation, requiring in-person participation at the caucuses. Democratic President Joe Biden, who in 2020 did not win a contest until South Carolina, requested the shift in the party's presidential nomination process to amplify diverse voices earlier in the presidential selection process. Biden, in a letter last month to DNC Rules Committee members, also said the party should scrap restrictive caucuses as opposed to state-run primaries because their rules on in-person participation can sometimes exclude working class and other voters. Biden, in his presidential campaigns, has never done well in the Iowa caucuses, coming in fourth in 2020. In its bid to remain the early nominating window, the Iowa Depart Democratic Party proposed an overall of the caucuses that would allow Democrats to express their preference for president by mail ahead of the precinct caucuses. On the night of the caucuses, Democrats would announce the results of the early vote and conduct the regular party organizing business of the caucuses. State party officials argued the changes would increase participation and accessibility, making the process more inclusive, straightforward, and understandable. Our proposed reforms went above and beyond anything suggested by previous reform commissions. We unfortunately were given no credit for our commitment to ending the caucuses as they have been conducted for the past 50 years, said Iowa DNC member Jan Bauer from Ames. 
Hart, addressing the DNC members, said it is vital that small rural states like Iowa do not lose our voice in the presidential nominating process. The new calendar includes no early states in the central and mountain time zones. Democrats cannot forget about entire groups of voters in the heart of the Midwest without doing significant damage to the party, Hart said. Let me tell you, Republicans in Iowa have already seized the opportunity to double down on their caucuses and on their commitment to Iowa as an early state. At the same time, they feed the narrative that Democrats have turned their backs on Iowa and rural America. In the coming weeks, our state will be flooded with Republican hopefuls spreading this damaging message to every corner of our state. Hart said she nonetheless vigorously supports Biden and the principles that guide the calendar review process. But I cannot support a proposal that further erodes Democratic Party support in my state and the entire middle part of the country. She said, Iowans value common sense, and it just doesn't make sense to entirely remove representation from rural Midwestern states in the pre-window. Iowa's Republican U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst echoed those concerns. Joe Biden said that, and the Democrats have officially ditched Iowa, Ernst tweeted. They're giving, a middle, they're giving middle America the middle finger. Grassley tweeted the DNC the, pulled the rug out from Iowa Democrats by revoking first-in-the-nation status. The Iowa caucuses were a decade-slow tradition of bipartisanship. It's sad Dems don't value the voice of rural America, Grassley posted. Fortunately, Republicans will continue to carry first in the nation mantle. Brennan, speaking to the Gazette by uh, phone after the vote, said Iowa Democrats will put our head down and keep working, noting the DNC will likely revisit the issue June 3rd, the deadline for New Hampshire and Georgia to comply with the requirements. By June 3rd, we're going to see a calendar that is still a mess, he said. Brennan said the revamped nominating lineup could largely be moot for 2024 if Biden runs effectively unopposed for the Democratic domination, but it may lay the groundwork to remake Democratic presidential cycles after that. The DNC plans to revisit the nominating calendar before 2028. Iowa Newspaper Association presents Master Editor Publisher Award to Journal Editor Bruce Miller. Sioux City Journal editor Bruce Miller received the prestigious Master Editor Publisher Award from the Iowa Newspaper Association during the Trade Group's annual convention on Thursday. Miller, who has compiled an over 40-year career at the journal, is the first editor and just the third recipient of the award from the journal since the INA established the designation in 1932. The honorees, who are selected by past recipients, are chosen from those who have worked hard, thought soundly, influence unselfishly, and live honorably. Miller, who has been editor since 2015, started at the newspaper after college as a reporter and later served as assistant managing editor and managing editor. For the last four decades, he has worked to promote the profession of journalism, make his local newspaper a leading source of news, and given back to the community wherever possible. In the newsroom, he leads by example with his positive, can-do attitude, challenging colleagues to achieve lofty goals and practice high professional standards. He is continually giving of his time and ready to offer praise and constructive criticism to the staff. He also enjoys mentoring young journalists, both in his role at the newspaper as well as an adjunct professor at Briarcliff University for over 30 years. Under his leadership, the journal has won numerous state, regional, and national awards. He continues to cover the arts and entertainment for the journal, with his content shared throughout Lee Enterprises' properties. 
Over the years, Miller has given back to the community in countless ways, including volunteering as an MC for a long list of charitable events. His high-profile public appearances have made him a local celebrity. In addition to Miller, the INA presented the Master Editor Publisher Award to Jeff Wagner of the Northwest Iowa Review, Karen Spurgeon of the Bloomfield Democrat, and Terry Christensen of Fourth Dodge Messenger. Former publishers Ron Peterson and the late Dean Krenz are the journal's only two previous recipients of the award. Moving to the opinion page, we'll begin with the um, journal editorial board opinion titled, Banning Books is Another Ill-Conceived Concept. Do you get the feeling some Iowa legislators hated high school? Why else would they be so determined to derail an education system that was once hailed as the best in the country? In addition to the ill-advised private school voucher program, they have been talking about book banning, something we haven't considered since the 1950s. These Red Scare issues, which don't have anything to do with most Iowans, are simply designed to plant fear in the minds of parents who worry that, our, that problems in our world begin in our schools. They don't. The fear-mongering is actually a political thing. Politicians talk about change as if it's a bad thing. The internet alone has revolutionized what gets taught, what's valued in the workplace, and what challenges we face. At a forum with the Moms for Liberty, Governor Kim Reynolds said if any one school bans a book, that book should be prohibited in all Iowa schools. That overreach flies in the face of Republicans' call for less government, and totally ignores an even more pressing matter that old internet. Just because you ban a book from schools doesn't make it go away. You can find many of those volumes listed among Amazon's bestsellers. If you put them on a don't read list, they're probably going to be more popular than if you just left them alone. The leave it to beaver lifestyle that the governor and others want to rekindle can't exist in our society. The naivete, naive sitcoms embrace dis that disappeared when government officials allowed cable channels to air profanity, nudity, and violence in their shows, and cell phones became a way of life. You cannot insulate a generation if you've already removed the wrapper. And if you're not able to control the internet, you're not going to keep young people from learning about any number of things. Helping students understand the world that surrounds them is a much better idea than trying to cancel it. Maybe a proactive approach would produce more favorable results. Now for our letters to the editor. Our first one is from Julie Carer of Lawton, Iowa. If Congress wants to cut spending, they should lead by example. Take a 20% cut in wages. Stop using the federal subsidies that pay 72% of the cost of their insurance. Start paying their own insurance. Cut out the free perks they use. This letter again was from Julie Carer of Lawton, Iowa. The next letter is written by Crystal Gorder from Frederick, Colorado. We recently made a trip to Sioux City for a funeral. My niece's husband was excited to see where we grew up and see Sioux City for the first time. Sadly, when we returned home, he received two $100 tickets in the mail for making an illegal right turn on red at the same light. It was obvious he did not see the sign in that regard, or he wouldn't have made the same mistake twice. We were reminiscing and telling him that Sioux City used to be called Sewer City because of the smell. Sadly, it may not only be leaving a bad smell with people, but leaving a bad taste in their mouths as well. And again, this was written by Crystal Gorder of Frederick. Colorado. Our next letter 
is written by uh, Jennifer Cook of Sioux City. And Jennifer writes, HF3 is currently an Iowa bill about SNAP and Medicaid that needs some work. Share your stories with lawmakers. As an Iowa constituent, I oppose limiting access to public assistance like SNAP with restrictive measures like asset testing involving children's savings accounts to a family second car. I am in favor of funding for double up food bucks so recipients can access fresh fruits and vegetables that are often higher priced and beyond food budgets. I believe it should become a standalone bill that shows compassion and commitment to serve those in our population that struggle to afford proper nutrition. Making the double up food bill bucks contingent upon being granted a waiver to restrict SNAP purchases when the USDA has never granted this type of waiver is a backhanded way to offload a bill that has too many undesirables within it. Placing a minuscule dollar amount on asset limits for SNAP recipients is a cookie cutter approach that sets many of those recipients up for failure. A second car is not a luxury for a two-parent home that needs to go to work, look for work, or transport their children to school. When these programs were created, they were meant to be a hand up, not a slap. Because of them, I was able to afford a home, receive an education, and get a job that lifted me out of poverty. Now I am a member of my community that has given back and served it for over 30 years. And this was, was written by Jennifer Cook of Sioux City. The next letter is written by Gordon Garrison of Esterville, Iowa. Iowa's economy runs on CO2. There would be no corn, soybeans, beef, pork, eggs, or poultry produced without the presence of CO2, carbon dioxide. This CO2 is being naturally produced and recycled within the state. That cycle also produces the oxygen we humans need to survive. The CO2 pipeline companies purpose to disrupt this vitally important natural cycle. CO2 pipelines are negative for every Iowa citizen. Be advised the pipeline con men and women are in town. Again, this was written by Gordon Garrison of Esterville, Iowa. And our last letter today is written by Michael Johnson of Sioux City. Define this, please. We residents on 6th and Court Street did what they said to do, moving our cars to odd even side. Well, most of us, all but two cars. I contacted SCPD about the cars and was informed those calls would be ticketed then told at the owner's expense. I was happy with that statement. That's what should happen. SCPD said they send a unit out to handle this problem. Because it is a problem, folks, tenants who ignore snow emergency warnings make it a pain for all of us. They need to pay for their total disregard. It's only right since the rest of us moved our cars. Next snowfall, we've all decided not to shovel our walks or move our cars. Nothing happens anyway, right? It's time the city and police department enforce snow emergencies and ticket and toll those who ignore the warnings. And then again, this was written by Michael Johnson of Sioux City. And now we have uh, an article by one of the journal regulars, and this time it's from uh, Susan Stewart. And she is writing about attending public forums provides good insight into people's needs. One of my early jobs was legislative liaison for a large state agency in Minnesota. I spent a lot of time listening to representatives of cities and organizations requesting funds from our agency. One of the more entertaining justifications for funding an energy project came from the mayor of a medium-sized Minnesota city. He simply said the city was good and it deserved the money. 
I think he got the funding. I thought I would find out if the pitches made to our legislative delegation have improved, so I attended a couple of legislative forums this month. I love to go to legislative forums. I like to see what causes people to get up early to beseech their elected representatives. Usually I return with a mental picture of an outstretched hand asking for money. I have learned that money is at the core of most requests, not changes in the law unless they lead to more funding. That wasn't entirely the case at the forums I attended, and when there was a request for funding, I learned there was a good reason. Kudos to Siouxland. I attended the Siouxland Chamber's start of the session forum. I used to attend these regularly. I was glad to see a younger and more diverse crowd than was present even a few years ago. As always, the Chamber has a coherent and concise list of issues of concern. In an unusual move, Chamber President Chris McGowan made a heated request for funding. Apparently, in 2022, the locally operated Iowa Poison Control Center did not receive a rare requested increase in funding. The organization was not singled out. The legislator in charge of the committee simply did not listen to any justification that led to an increase. McGowan made it very clear to the delegation that its members will be judged on whether the funding materializes this year. Then I went over to the city of Sioux City. City staff provided a concise overview of its concerns. At the top of the list is the understandable concern about property tax reduction. Governor Reynolds did not address this topic in her condition of the state address, but legislative leaders have made it clear they are not happy when property tax increases result from housing price inflation alone. For many reasons, city officials are concerned about any state and post system that limits their ability to manage their affairs, including finance. Councilmember Alex Waters pointed out such a change could eliminate local control. He also noted that the state used to backfill property taxes and that is no longer happening. Mayor Scott chastised the entire legislative delegation for considering elimination of local option taxes authorized by the state, but imposed by cities that provide property tax relief to citizens. In addition to these fireworks between state and local officials on the main issue of funding were some interesting side stories. In addressing the need for training for his force, Police Chief Rex Mueller bemoaned the lack of interest in police jobs. When he was hired 20 or more years ago, there were 500 applicants for every slot. Today it is down to 50 per slot. He also addressed the growing realization that there must be a connection mental health professionals and first responders. Unusual requests for state grant programs came from park and recreations. Cemeteries are becoming a lifestyle amenity as well as a gene genealogy resource. Citizens enjoy strolling through our places of eternal rest. Nor did I know that we have a need for campgrounds because the nomad, uh, the nomad workforce, such as traveling nurses, live in them. Both are interesting quality of life issues. Forums provide a good opportunity for constituents to look legislatures in the eye. I hope that this year there will be an unbiased opportunities for input in Siouxland, and the arguments made will be more nuanced than simply we are good and need money. And this again was written by Susan Stewart, who is a retired corporate attorney. During the 40 years she has lived in Sioux City, she has been involved in a variety of local and state volunteer activities, including serving as chair of the Woodbury County Republican Party. She and her husband, Dr. Bob Stewart, are the parents of four children and have five grandchildren. 
You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 5th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries, beginning with Thomas Henry Malloy, 86, passed away peacefully Friday, January 13th at his home in New River, Arizona. He was formerly of Sioux City. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 1 p.m. on Tuesday at St. Joseph Church in Elk Point, South Dakota, with the Reverend Joseph Vogel officiating. Visitation will be one hour, hour prior to the service. Burial will be at St. John's Cemetery in Beersford, South Dakota. The family is being assisted with arrangements by Christie Smith Funeral Home, Larkin Chapel. Tom was born March 30, 1936, in Sioux City, the only child born to Gertrude Susan Kiefer and Henry Raymond Malloy. Tom attended Blessed Sacrament School and graduated from Healand High School. After graduation, Tom enlisted in the United States Army, where he received an honorable discharge due to medical reasons. Tom attended the University of Omaha, Nebraska, and received a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. Tom lived in Wayne, Nebraska and worked for GMAC. In 1970, Tom moved to Laurel, Nebraska and became an international harvester dealer. He owned and operated Malloy Incorporated. Tom's mother, Gertrude, joined him. When her health started to fail, she entered a nursing home in Sioux City. Tom sold the business, moved to Richland, South Dakota, and farmed family farms to be closer to his mother. Tom retired from farming and moved to Sioux City. In 2000, Tom bought a home in New River to enjoy warm winters and being surrounded by mountains and desert life. Tom talked fondly about growing up in a Catholic home. As a youth, he was an altar server and continued throughout his life to be active in his parishes as a lector, sponsor, and numerous committees. Everything that had to do with farming was Tom's passion. After retirement, he continued to drive around and check out the crops and farm machinery. Tom became a loving parent and grandparent to Linda's children and grandchildren. Many fun times were spent on bleachers for sporting events, school activities, church activities, and many family events. The family would like to thank Hospice of the Valley, Phoenix, Arizona, for their love, compassionate care, and guidance. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Hospice of the Valley or St. Jude, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Janet L. Haug, 86, of Elk Point, died on Thursday, February 2nd, at the Pioneer Memorial Nursing Home in Viburg. Services will be at 1 p.m. on Tuesday at the St. Paul Lutheran Church at 31903 475th Avenue, Rural Elk Point, with burial in the church cemetery. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 on Monday at the Hoffmeister Jones Funeral Home, Parker, with a prayer service at 7 uh, p.m. Leo H. Stews, Hinton, Iowa, 72, died Thursday, February 2nd. Services will be February 9th at 2 p.m. Myers Brothers Colonial Chapel. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Wayland Keith Hicks, Jr. of Cherokee, Iowa, was seven days short of 93 years old when he passed away on Friday, January 27th in Marcus, Iowa. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 18th at the Memorial Presbyterian Church in Cherokee. Pastor Larry Osterkamp will officiate. Military rites will be performed by the Cherokee American Legion and the L.A. Westcott Post 2253. 
Public visitation will be from 3 to 7 on Friday, February 17th, with the family present from 5 to 7 at the Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Wayland, known within the family as Poco, was born February 3, 1930 in the Gorgas Hospital and Panama Canal to the U.S. Navy Lieutenant J.C. Wayland Keith Hicks and his wife Esther Gertrude Dyke Hicks. In 1931, his fam fam father resigned his Navy commission and the family relocated to Iowa City. The family relocated again in 1934 and moved to Sioux City, where Wayland's father established a medical practice. Wayland attended Hunt Elementary School, North Junior High School, and graduated with honors from Central High School in the June class of 1947. He attended Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and then transferred to the University of Iowa. Following a tour of duty with the Army during the Korean War, he returned to the Uni University of Iowa and obtained a match Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering. He was employed by the United States Gypsum Company at their production facility in Fort Dodge and later in that company's corporate headquarters in Chicago. In 1959, he partnered with Tom Grundman to purchase the assets of the Osterling Construction Company of Cherokee and formed the Grundman Hicks Construction Company. On July 2, 1961, Wayland married Donna Marie Clayton in the First Methodist Church in Sioux City. This union was blessed with one son, Dyke, who now is now an engineer and consultant residing in Ames. Aside from his business interests, Wayland enjoyed genealogy, gardening, and reading. His computerized genealogy program includes several thousand extended family members and ancestors, the earliest proven of the latter being James Smallwood, a paternal seventh-great-grandfather who was born in England in 1639, arrived in Maryland in 1664, and died in Charles County, Maryland in 1714. With the guidance and help of his wife Donna, a master gardener, Wayland slowly developed their home's landscaping, which eventually came to include over 300 varieties of perennial plants and shrubs. He was also instrumental in planning and installing the cart paths and watering systems on the Cherokee Country Club golf course. His extensive home library is concentrated in modern classics and American history. Wayland will be interred in the family plot in the West Lawn Cemetery in Orange City, Iowa, where also rests his maternal great-grandparents, Ari Niemensvivit and his wife, Ingrid. Great-grandparents, grandparents, and, and his parents. The family requests memorials be made in Wayland's name to Cherokee Regional Hospice, Heartland Memorial Fund, Memorial Presbyterian Church Foundation, Cherokee Fire Department, and Marcus Fire Department. Inez A. Hyan of Lamar's 90 died Thursday, February 2nd. Services will be February 10th at 10.30 a.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamar's. Burial will be following services at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Sioux City. Visitation will be February 9th from 2 to 7 p.m. at the Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamar's and resumes one hour prior to service time at the church. Don Leroy Rose of Lyons, Nebraska, 88, died Tuesday, January 31st. Services will be February 7th at 10.30 a.m. at the Gosler Funeral Home Chapel in Ottawa. Burial will be June 22nd at Hillcrest Cemetery in Decatur, Nebraska with military honors. Arrangements with Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments of Ottawa. Terrence Lee Terry Cromenhook, 84, passed away after after a long illness Friday, February 3rd, with his loving wife of 59 years at his side. 
Service will be held at 2 p.m. on Wednesday at First Lutheran Church with Rev. Christine Tenji officiating. Visitation with the family will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Private family burial will be at a later date at Memorial Park Cemetery. Terry was born April 7, 1938 to Harry and Ruth Hook in Sioux City. He attended Smith Elementary, West Junior, and graduated from Central High School with the class of 1957. After high school, he worked for the Great Northern Railroad and joined the Navy Reserve. He joined the Sioux City Fire Department in 1966. He was also an EMT and taught CPR at Western Iowa Tech. He retired as a captain of the Sioux City Fire Department in 1988 due to a job-related injury. He then spent a short time as a car and truck salesman for Sioux City Team Ford. His love of training his own personal hunting dogs eventually launched him into a career as a professional. He began training in 1961 and became a professional trainer in 1967, while also being employed full-time with the fire department, where he used his off days and vacations to compete in field trials. After his retirement from the fire department, he began training full-time. Terry and his wife, Fran, operated Cayhawk Kennels for many years. They traveled all over the United States with their kids joining to help with the horses and dogs. Terry was an avid hunter and enjoyed fishing. He was also a member of several clubs. He was a founding member and president of the Sioux City Strollers Club, a member of the Hawkeye Brittany Club, president of the Central Westfield Trial Club, founding member of the pres and president of the Ringneck GSP Club, member of Pheasants Forever, member of Hawkeye Rifle and Gun Club, Sioux City Cowboy Group known as the Sioux City Gang, a Single Action Shooting Society member, a member of the Nebraska Territorial Rangers Club, and was a lifetime member of the National Rifle Association. Terry met the love of his life, Francis, in 1962 with a cast on his leg and a puppy under his arm. He, they married June 29, 1963 at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sioux City. They were longtime members of First Lutheran Church in Sioux City. To this union, two children were born, Matthew and Jennifer. Terry was a devoted husband and father, coaching both Little League and softball, and never missing a single one of the kids' game. The family would like to thank the wonderful staff at Bickford Cottage, Memory Loss of Sioux City, and Hospice of Siouxland. Memorials may be sent to First Lutheran Church. Darrell J. Townley passed away peacefully on Wednesday, February 1st, at a local care center. He had been living independently on his farm until a recent fall and would have celebrated his 100th birthday in 25 days. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Visitation with the family present will be from 5 to 7 p.m. today at the funeral home. Interment will be at Calvary Cemetery. Darrell was born in Sioux City on February 26, 1923, the son of Harold and Hazel. He attended Sioux City schools and graduated from Central High School in 1941. He married Dolores Richter in 1946. The, the couple loved ballroom dancing and were members of a dance club. Darrell and Dolores celebrated 74 years together before her passing in 2021. Darrell lived on the family century farm where he retired in 2013 after 72 years of farming. In his earlier years, he obtained his private pilot's license and sometimes landed his airplanes on his own farm. He also enjoyed bowling in the Leeds Booster League for many years. Beloved Father Keith Lyle Saunders, 90, joined our Lord on Wednesday, February 1st. His spark for life and eternal sense of adventure will be deeply missed, but will live on through the legacy of his family. 
Keith will be laid to rest in Chandler, Arizona in the presence of his dear wife and family. Pastor Timothy Pruitt will officiate the services. Arrangements are with the Valley of the Sun Mortuary in Chandler. <coughs> Excuse me. Keith was born on the family farm in Hinton, Iowa, and then moved to Sioux City with his family and spent his childhood. There he met and married his high school sweetheart, Nettie. Their marriage was a life time of loyalty and dedication for 71 years with three children, 12 grandchildren, 18 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. With Nettie by his side, Keith embarked on a life of service to his country and communities, entrepreneurial spirit for business, and dedication to his family. He proudly served his country when he joined the Air Force in the era of the Korean conflict, loading munitions for air support. He returned to Iowa, where he was a crew member on a Missouri riverboat, played in the VFW Baseball League, and partnered with his father and brother to develop Saunders Oil into a thriving business. While in Iowa, Keith raised his family and sparked a passion for riding and rodeo by supporting his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren through Little Bridges, high school, college, and professional rodeo competitions. Part of Keith's life was travel and always seeking the future, which took him to Rapid City, South Dakota for his next business venture, and where he also dedicated himself to being a scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts. Keith and Nettie decided to find the sunshine in Arizona, where they developed a construction company, Keith Cole, that they ran together until retirement. Keith and Nettie continued their sense of adventure, developing real estate opportunities, traveling, and spending time with family across the country. Grandpa's greatest pride and achievement was his family. A visit with Grandpa was always included in stories, laughter, and a big pot of his homemade chili. A family gathering will not be the same, but his light will continue to shine in heaven and in those he touched through life on earth. Mary Pat Thompson, 69, of Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, February 2nd, at a Sioux City hospital following a brief battle with lung cancer. Services will be at 12.30 p.m. on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Reverend David Heeman will officiate. Burial will be at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation with the family present will be from 11.30 to 12.30 on Tuesday at the funeral home. Mary Pat was born June 29, 1953 in Sioux City. She was the daughter of Eugene and Roseanne O'Neill. She grew up in South Sioux City and graduated from Heelan High School in 1971. On August 10, 1974, Mary Pat married the love of her life, Philip Thompson, in South Sioux City. Mary Pat worked at Hare by Rick for several years and then retired from Sioux City Community School District after working at West High for 25 years. She enjoyed reading, crocheting, and swimming, but most of all spending time with her grandchildren. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the June E. Nyland Cancer Center or the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. Orvin A. Alvin, 87, of Sioux City and formerly of Soldier, passed away on Thursday, February 2nd, at a local care facility. Per his wishes, private family services will be held. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Orvin was born on September 19, 1935, in Soldier to Harold and Mary Alvin. He grew up on the family farm and was a lifelong resident of Soldier. He later took over the farming operations while raising his four children. Joanne A. Tutsi Mast, South Sioux City, 89, died Thursday, February 2nd. Services will be February 9th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Michael's Catholic Church, South Sioux City. Burial will be at St. Michael's Cemetery. Visitation will be February 8th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. 
Sarah E. Pearlie Jorstead, Sioux City, 87, died Thursday, February 2nd. Services will be February 13th at 10.30 a.m. at the Holy Cross Parish Blessed Sacrament Church. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Marlis Irene Combs Lamar, 79, died Tuesday, January 24th. Private family services held at a later date. Arrangements were with the Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamar's. And that concludes today's obituaries. We'll now move to some news briefs. Storm Lake attempted murder case dismissed. Prosecutors have dropped attempted murder and other charges against a Texas man who was accused of trying to kill another man in a Storm Lake hotel room. In his motion to dismiss the case, Buena Vista County Attorney Paul Allen said he determined prosecution of Miguel Garcia Montalongo is not justified for numerous reasons, including the sufficiency or insufficiency of the evidence. Allen also said he'd learned that the victim is being extradited to Texas to face criminal charges and could face deportation. A witness to the incident has been charged with the domestic abuse and another witness cannot be found. District Judge Nancy Wittenberg approved the dismissal on January 17th. Garcia Montalongo, 55, of Monta Alto, Texas, pleaded not guilty in September in Buena Vista District Court to charges of attempted murder, willful injury resulting in serious injury, assault with intent to commit sexual abuse, and assault with a dangerous weapon. He was charged with assaulting Mario Zamora Cordova on August 5th at the Budget Inn Hotel after becoming upset when Cordova refused drugs. Uh, Garcia Montalongo was accused of grabbing a 10 to 15 inch knife and gouging Cordova's eyes before attempting to sexually assault him. Garcia Montalongo fell on Cordova's right leg, breaking it and dislocating his ankle. Cordova was able to stand up and punch Garcia Montalongo in the face before exiting the room and calling his wife, who called 911. Prosecutors seek to dismiss stabbing case. Prosecutors have asked for the dismissal of a case against a storm-like woman who has been charged with stabbing her boyfriend. Assistant Buena Vista County Attorney Ashley Herring on Thursday filed a motion to dismiss charges against Jezebella Esa, 20, of Storm Lake, who had been arrested December 20th on charges of willful injury causing serious injury and assault while displaying a dangerous weapon. Herring said that in making her motion, she had considered factors such as the nature of the offense, evidence, Esa's age, criminal history and background, available diversionary programs and costs of prosecuting the crime in relation to its seriousness. Asa was accused of stabbing her boyfriend near his left shoulder blade during an argument at their storm-like home with a six-inch knife. The man's left lung was punctured, resulting in significant blood loss, and he was flown to a Sioux City hospital because of the severity of the wound. Armed robbery suspect faces federal prosecution. A Sioux City man suspected in the armed robbery of at least six Siouxland banks and businesses now faces federal prosecution. A complaint unsealed Friday in U.S. District Court in Sioux City charges Kevin Spratt of possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. An indictment has not yet been filed. Spratt, 29, is scheduled to appear in court Monday. The robberies occurred during a one-month period in the fall and stretched over three states. In each instance, surveillance cameras captured images of a man believed to be Spratt. They include, on October 16th, Food and Fuel, Dakota City, Nebraska, an incident in which Spratt is accused of threatening a store clerk with a handgun and taking approximately $850 in cash from the register. 
October 21st, Bank First, Ottawa, Iowa, in which Spratt is suspected of entering the bank with an AR-15 type rifle, pointed it at the tellers and demanding money. The robber was handed $11,510 in cash, but dropped $990 in the bank lobby when trying to get put the gun back in his pants. October 22nd, Bluff Stop, Sergeant Bluff, where a clerk was threatened with a handgun, while $482 in cash was taken from the cash register. October 24th, Check Into Cash, Sioux City, where two employees were threatened at gunpoint before handing over approximately $4,855 in cash. November 11th, Jefferson Conoco, Jefferson, South Dakota, a robbery in which the robber put a handgun to the clerk's back and forced her to open the cash register. The man fled before taking any money. November 14th, Pioneer Bank, Salex, Iowa, where a bank employee was assaulted outside the bank by a man who was displaying a handgun. The man entered the bank and searched through the teller drawers and fled before taking any cash. Sprat is also suspected of robbing two individuals at gunpoint on September 30th in Sioux City. Sprat was arrested November 14th after the attempted robbery in Salix when he was spotted driving on Interstate 29 and stopped by police. A handgun matching the appearance of a gun used in the robberies was found in the car, which also closely resembled a car captured on surveillance videos approaching and leaving the scene of the robberies. FBI agents reviewing Spratt's social media accounts found photos of him dressed in clothing matching clothes the robber was seen wearing in surveillance, surveillance videos, holding a handgun consistent with the one seized from his car, and holding a stack of cash 8 inches thick. Tattoos in the photos also match tattoos seen on the suspect in the surveillance videos. Clothing items matching those seen in the videos were seized during a search of Spratt's Sioux City home. Spratt was charged in Woodbury County District Court in November and pleaded not guilty of three counts each of first-degree robbery, assault while participating in a felony, felon in possession of a firearm, aggravated assault, and one count each of trafficking in stolen weapons and commission of a specified unlawful activity. Those charges were dropped Thursday when a judge granted Woodbury County Attorney James Loomis motion to dismiss the case because of Spratt's pending federal prosecution. A search of online court records found no charges filed against Spratt related to the Nebraska and South Dakota robberies. And now a Dear Abby letter. Dear Abby, my older sister visits me every week to play cards and chat. While I love her dearly and enjoy her visits, sometimes I do not appreciate one topic she brings up. We are in different ends of the political spectrum. Although I never initiate a conversation about the candidate she voted for in the last election, she never misses an opportunity to debase my choice for the same office. It's distressing, and I nearly cried the last time she made a derogatory remark about him. When she doesn't bring up politics, we have a wonderful time. Why does she do this? Is she clueless about how much this bothers me? I am a quiet person who doesn't like confrontation or making others feel bad, so I generally just nod my head or listen without saying anything. I sometimes dread seeing her because I never know if she is going to bring up politics. Do you have a polite, non-confrontational way of making her stop? Signed, opposite in Pennsylvania. And Abby responds, yes I do. Quit nodding your head and establish some ground rules with Sissy. Tell her that you love her company, but that the political comments must stop. Make clear that you want politics off the table when she visits because the subject is so upsetting and that if she cannot comply, you will be seeing her less often, period. Standing up for yourself is not being confrontational. You are long overdue for that brief chat. If you cannot do this, then stop blaming her and prepare. be prepared for more, much more of the same.
And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 5th. I'm Dogna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.